welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Rizika. And I'm Andres Lorette. And on the Two Real Cinema Club, every couple of weeks, we watch a couple of films, usually one old and new, and we draw some comparisons and some contrasts between the two. Compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a, like a good exam question. Yes. And this week, we're looking at uh, 2023's Reality, which is on... HBO in the States, in the UK? Where? Now, I, I'm confused. Oh. So it's on, so it has, a, it has a theatrical release in the UK and it's oh. on, is it? So I thought it used to be HBO Max and now it's oh just Max I just, or HBO. I know. And I, I, as soon as I said HBO, I said there, HBO doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so it's not, so it's impossible to see this film now. Um, I saw it on Max, which is a new, completely unrelated to HBO <laughs> venture. Right. Which is, which, which is like what they're saying, that Pepsi Max is completely unrelated to... Pepsi, Pepsi Zero or Coke Zero, they're all. Right, okay. It's, oh, to Coke, it's not it's all to Coke. Same that of crap, I think, uh, <laughs> in Soda World. And we're looking at also, I saw it on DVD. <gasps> is, is that 1975? I, uh, I think it is. Let me check my notes. Three Days uh, of the Condor. Yes. A big 70s film with Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway. I was thinking we should call this podcast Reality Bites. It <laughs> Just too easy. Um, before we talk about the films, uh, we'll quickly do the socials. As always, you can find us on Twitter um, uh, at Two Real Cine Club. At Twitter, we're on Instagram, Two Real Cinema Club. Uh, at Instagram, you can read our blog uh, at Two Real dot com, and you can email us. We would love to read your emails, be they kind or abusive, mm-hmm. at Two Real Cinema Club at gmail dot com. Let us know what you think. Uh, that's the address to use if you want to tell us your opinion, ask us questions, offer a sponsorship, or start the formal complaints procedure. And if you can, leave us a review. Uh, if you can find the time and energy, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Give us the appropriate number of stars, whatever number you feel is right for you. Does, does iHeartRadio have stars or hearts? That's a good point. Maybe they, they should have little dials or something, because I think it's the radio oh. part rather than the heart part, which oh, seems to be I see. like the, the you know the, the 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 important bit of the sentence. I've never I've never heard of it. So right, I've, apparently apparently they they own more local like radio stations, like FM and AM Ooh. stations, than any other single company in the United really? States. Ooh. Yeah, which which makes it sound like we're on FM radio, and we're, I don't uh, think we are. I've always wanted to be on FM. I'd, I'd take AM at this point, but boy, FM would be awesome. <laughs> I'm not going to have that Steely Dang song on my brain uh, for the rest of the evening. No static so at good. all. No static. So good. So good. Uh, so first movie of the pairing uh, is Reality. Uh, so as you say, this is this is uh, a release this year. This film had its debut this year yeah. uh, at Berlin, I think in February, something like that. Made a bit of a splash at the festival. It was picked up by HBO Films, who've presumably renamed themselves just Films recently. Um, so it's being distributed <laughs> in the US by by Max, ex-HBO Max. It's got a, a theatrical release in the UK, so you can see it in cinemas here. It's uh, directed by Tina Satter. It's her debut film. She comes from a, a New York theatre background. Uh, it is a screenplay by Satter and James Paul Dallas. But um, this is one of the things we've got to talk about, because ha- does this film have a screenplay at all? Um, this film is based very closely on real transcripts of a real interview. Mm-hmm. So has it been written? Are we kind of watching a sort of documentary? 
Um, let me shall, shall, let me start out by telling you the story. Let me tell you the story. Shall it's I tell you the story? Yeah, it goes like this. Tsk, and then the music comes in. I've heard that. I've heard that on this podcast. Tsk. I'm, I'm, I can tell you're waiting with your hi-hat right now. You ready? <laughs> Hit the hi-hat. So this film is based very closely on the transcripts of real interviews conducted between its main characters. It's, it's June 2017. It's Augusta, Georgia. And reality winner, a young NSA Pashto and Farsi translator. I've I, I got to ask you, translator or translator? You say translator, wouldn't you? Yes, translator. Where I feel, I feel like I should be saying translator, but then I feel like I'm hamming up a kind of an English accent that no one ever uses. So uh, I apologise in advance if I keep flipping how I pronounce it. Try that, interpreter. A try inter- oh, yes, there we go. But, but she kind of isn't an interpreter, is she? It's like she wants to be an interpreter, but currently yeah. she's just a translator. Okay. Anyway, what, whatever she does, um, she arrives home in her little white car with her groceries to find... Two men waiting for her. They quickly identify themselves as FBI. They tell her they have a warrant to search her home and her car. And the rest of the film you know, kind of plays out in real time. And eventually, as the film plays out, they tell her that they are investigating the leak of classified documents. And using a mixture of persuasion and threats they get reality to tell them what she knows. But what has she done and what's going to happen? So I, I'm, going to, I'm going to kick off by saying I did really enjoy this film. You know, it's, it's short, doesn't outstay its welcome. Uh, it kept me gripped. But has it, does it have a script? So the, the, the film is, I mean, the film is a play, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's you know it's absolutely a play. It's like it's you know it's literally a play because it was adapted from a play. Yep. Uh, the, the play is called "Is This a Room," um, and it, it's an example of uh, something I didn't know anything about until I read it uh, for this week's episode. It's something an example of verbatim theatre. So it uses the text of this publicly available transcript of reality winner's actual FBI interview. Yeah. Um, and uh, and just turn that straight into a play. And, and the play was you know and the film. Are set in you know pretty much one location, a small number of characters. You know, it's performed in real time. I mean, this is a play, isn't it? It's a play, and it's a play that almost doesn't really have a script. Um, should we even be covering this film? Yes, I think so because it breaks um, some rules, or it's at least very innovative. And I think we should call it a film, and it is a film. And they even sort of lead you in, or, or Tina Satter leads you in. At one point, I think you're actually listening to the the actual recording, the actual FBI recording. Yeah, um, I think in the very beginning, in the very beginning. I mean, I assume that is is that the actual recording? Is that like a reenaction of the actual recording? I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether the recording itself is public domain or whether it's just the transcript. The voices sounded different from the actors' voices, and I think it's just it's just to sort of lead us in. It's really quite clever that you hear a couple of lines from I think one of the investigators and reality early, early on, um, and that sort of tells us that. They are more or less going verbatim. I love that idea of verbatim theater. I'd never heard of that before, so that's new to me also. Um, so I think, and I think there is a script in the sense that there's direction there. You can definitely feel how the characters are directed. So I think, you know, in terms of them moving around the house and all that, that has to be written, I suspect. And um, 
but it, it's very much based on on an interrogation, which actually is it's just uh, intuitively, innately um, dramatic. That's why I think it was. I, I really enjoyed the film, and I think uh, in part because it's just a very dramatic conversation. It is. It is dramatic. Uh, though I'm still going to ra- kind of um, uh, raise a question mark about how much yeah. um, the, the writer has to do. I mean, clearly there's some editing that's happened. You know, and there are some choices that have been exercised, but yeah. you know, there's hasn't been a great deal of of work for the writer to do. It's been yeah, an editing rather than a creating. Well, if the job. writer's strike, if the writer's strike goes on, we got to get used to this. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's either that or it's chat gpt isn't it it's yes, one of those two yeah, yeah. absolutely i mean uh, there's my little note here which is that you know the thing about verbatim theater is that in real life the dialogue is usually very realistic yeah but in real life the structure is generally sloppy uh, structure is generally sloppy and i think i think this is kind of true for this film insofar as it's. Um, I did a little calculation on my in my notebook. It's eighty-two yeah. minutes, and that means that it's seven thousand two hundred ninety feet of thirty-five millimeter film. If okay. we use the French classification, yeah. um, it's you know it's short and it's skillfully made. You know, I feel very sure of that. But I I do think for all that I was gripped by it, there's probably only just enough story for about an hour's worth of film. So they you know they stuck to this form. Um, as a, as a kind of creative exercise, and they've produced something very interesting at the end of it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have written off the idea of exploring around the story. Yeah, you know, so you know, we don't get background, we don't get some friends apart from there's a little recorded call to Reality Sister during the end credits, which again, I I wasn't sure whether that was done by actors or whether that was done by the real people. Mm. Yeah, um, so you know, they, they've decided that they're not going to allow themselves to develop um you know it's it's basically just like a, a you know a, a we have a, a silent reconstruction of those events that happen outside the interview but otherwise yeah. they've kind of painted themselves into a corner as far as their creative options go with this yeah. once you've made this decision you can't embellish yeah that was very intriguing to me that it does work um, without a whole lot of manipulation from the writer. I think I'd read somewhere when we were looking at these films that the actual encounter was closer to two hours. So it, they probably have cut some things out. I think okay. it's like addition through subtraction. I loved the length. We had just talked about films under 90 minutes. Um, this thing whizz, yeah. whizzes by. It's easy to follow. Um, even though it's you know, has lots of you know spy material and intelligence material and all that, it's still pretty pretty simple to follow. Um, and yeah, if anything, maybe she maybe took some things out which made it stronger. Because as you're right, I mean normally we'd think of just everyday dialogue as being uncinematic somehow, but then when you sit down and try and write dialogue, it's really hard to write real dialogue. So <laughs> I never questioned, oh, this is terrible dialogue or this is really badly written dialogue because it's very real and it, you know, it hits perfectly. It's exactly the way that moment played out. So um, I really enjoyed that aspect, but I think, yeah, if anything, it's probably shorter than the actual um, arrest and search of the home was, but, um, but still in an hour and 23 minutes definitely makes a feature film. We learned that for the French could be 40 minutes and be a feature. Could be 40 minutes, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, right, let's, let's ring the spoiler bell because there are, yeah. you know, for, for all that I've complained that not a huge amount doesn't happen, there is some stuff that happens oh, definitely. and there's some stuff that we shouldn't, we shouldn't spoil. So let's, let's, let me wheel it out. Wait a second, wait fair, a second. Fair enough. Wait a second. Wait a second. Okay, here it is. Right, okay, right, right. So you ready? Cover your ears. Yeah. Oh, oh 
was too, I moved it too close to the microphone there. I'm sorry, that was too loud. The FBI, the FBI definitely heard that. <laughs> yeah, really, really my street heard that. So, okay, spoiler bell. Um, we're going to spoil the film from here on. It. I did find this film gripping, just as we've said, and I didn't know anything going in. I don't know whether you did. This wasn't really a story that was big in the UK news, yeah. so I wasn't particularly aware of it before seeing the film. I didn't know what reality had done, and. So, you know, I I believed her initial assertions of innocence mm. at the start of the film, and I think you are meant to. And when it turns out that she probably has done what she was accused of, it did make me feel a little bit kind of dizzy and swimmy in just the way that the main character does. Yeah. Um, there's basically there is one turn in the film, isn't there? There is one twist, which is you know you kind of believe that she's you know, um, hasn't really done anything bad. And then it emerges, you know what, they know everything that she's done and, and she kind of comes clean and, and everything, you know, spirals a little bit out of control from that moment. Um, and I think it's played terrifically. I think it's a, you know, it's a great moment. It's a great turn. It, you know, it really works. Does it work if you are aware of the story from the actual news? Yes, I think so, because I I had to be reminded of a lot of what happened here. So I had read about the original story, heard um, podcasts and radio things about it. Um, I'd never really seen a documentary or anything like that. But I think because you're getting into the, the weeds of it, how it actually happened, and, and it really just focuses on – it focuses very little on her actually – um, taking documents or revealing the documents. It really focuses just on the interaction between principally two of the FBI agents and, and reality in her home. Um, so it's it's really just about that part of the process. It's not about the whole story of what she did or what. Not there's not a lot of backstory about who she was beforehand. Um, so I think it really does work um, on that level of really focusing on just that moment. And it's a real it's a real theater trick. Really, because yeah. um, you know, no one's going out, leaving, and coming back, or anything like that. It's three people sort of trapped in a space. Um, so I think it really does work. And I, as I said, I, di- I didn't know a lot going into it. I was reminded of a lot of things. Um, and I think for that reason, you would have to really know the story to be bored by the film. I think, and I, I don't think there's right. anyone that's in that camp really. And especially because it's it wasn't a dramatic story beforehand. It's been made dramatic by the release of the film and probably the performances of the play. I mean, there are some great performances here, aren't there? Fantastic, I mean, Sydney yeah. Sweeney, not an actor that I knew, but I think she's just terrific. She is really believable. Yeah. I did read some background. Apparently, she did speak to the real reality winner mm-hmm. yep. on Zoom, I think, to try and get her mannerisms and the rhythm of her speech yeah. down. Yep. And, you know, the way that she comes across, you know, she really feels like a real character. Yeah. You know, like she's tremendously believable because she's kind of, she's so contradictory. I mean, this has been like a little note in my screenwriter's notebook, mm-hmm. you know, contradictions. I think uh, you're a vital part of believable characters. She is kind of, she is solid and she is kind of wavering. She is kind of flighty and shifty, but she's also committed. She has you know, all these kind of contradictions to make her feel you know, real. Um, I've, I've written my notebook here, contradictions make people instead of archetypes. Yeah. And keep the story interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the film is kind of, you know, ostensibly there is a, you know, a plot about government security. You know, and a lot of the film does feel like it's sort of a, alluding to a discussion on the rights of women and the attitudes uh, that women might have to endure in the workplace. 
because she's you know she's really physically dominated by these two men in a closed room. Yeah. You know, I I kind of came away. Um, I watched it kind of with Rachel, and we haven't spoken about this aspect of the story. Actually, we probably should do. I came away feeling that this is the kind of situation that is probably familiar to many women in the workplace. Yeah. You know, I suspect, you know, this is not a kind of situation that is exclusive to the intelligence services. This notion of kind of being boxed in by two physically larger men who are going to tell you what it is that you've done wrong and how badly you've done it wrong. Yeah. Um, I th- but I thought, yeah, great performances, very skillfully well-written character, which is, you know, a ludicrous thing to say when it kind of hasn't been written. It's yeah. just been transcribed. I think that's a real difference maker in this film, though, is the acting. I mean, this is a really well-directed film. Those characters felt very real to me. I think when you're dealing with a small cast like that, with a theater background, they were probably rehearsing long long passages. It's not like filmmaking where you're going in and maybe you've got three or four lines to deliver in a scene. Um, it really felt worked and it felt directed, and I think that was a real strength uh, in the film. It does try and sort of acknowledge its source material, you know, like not just by, um, you know, telling you that this is a film based on real in- interviews, but it kind of it, it deals with this you know weird thing that you see in official documents from the intelligence services where passages are redacted. Yeah, um, and I, you know it's it's clearly tried to do it in a a cinematic way. So you know when when the words are deleted from the page, the characters are deleted from the screen. So they just kind of they just sort of snap out. Yeah. And then snap back in again when the dialogue is crossed out. Um, and I, so I wonder whether that was one of those ideas that seemed, um, you know, very clever and witty uh, at the time. I did come away feeling slightly like it took me out of the experience, though. It, it seemed a bit kind of self-conscious and a little bit um, clever. And it kept reminding me that I was watching a movie. Yeah. Well, what I liked was that uh, there was variation in it. I think at first there's pixelation, so you're losing part of the story, which is just a great touch because that's kind of what happens in the in the whole process of, of redaction and, and government secrets and all that. Um, and then eventually, um, yeah, the characters disappear entirely. Um, there's a little bit more variation in the sense that sometimes you're the you you're hearing the dialogue as it's sort of being typed out in the original transcript, and then that gets blacked out, that gets redacted that way. Um, but you're sort of, re- yeah, redacting characters as well. But then eventually, I think it's sort of to preserve the secrecy of what happened, what she did, because we really don't know for quite a while. And then eventually we start to hear more and more. Um, it's kind of, um, I think it's uh, it's contemporaneous to the, the, the confession when she finally sort of starts to tell the truth or it's sort of really just dragged out of her. Um, then we start, then there's less censorship, I guess. So you start to see, yeah. you see her say exactly what happened and she starts naming the the um the election rigging and and how uh, trump was involved and and that sort of thing so that that comes uh out bit by bit so again it's one of these like theater tricks of just dripping the information bit by bit and starting to show more and more um by the end of the film so i actually i I didn't mind it i mean i think i think you are limited automatically when you say okay we're just going to use this transcript as the as the script essentially and you know you don't you don't have a lot of spaces there's not a lot of like um open images of, of just, you know, landscapes or the, we never even see the whole house really. So it's not a cinematic yeah. film in that way. So I think they were using tricks and I thought really well. And that was one of them that I think worked just to make it a bit more uh, cinematic. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a lot of the thing that some of the things that jarred me, which were obviously 
efforts at cinema were some of the clever little cutaways to things that she was seeing. She's going through this intense interrogation, but at one time she sees like a toy truck on a sidewalk and it's got a, um, has a, a Confederate flag on the side. And then there's a lot, her cat is on her mind because the cat is kind of loose and some of the guys are freaked out by cats and then someone has to leash up the cat. And then later on she sees her cat or a cat, I think it's a neighborhood cat, in that same little toy truck Truck. in the back. There's a scene where the snail, the snail is sort of crossing this window pane very, very slowly. Um, And they're all just sort of these little cutaways, I think, to get into her psychology in this intense moment and you, you just get these little breaks because it's pretty intense it's a, it's an interrogation that goes probably what 50 60 minutes of the film is really focused on this interrogation at least um so there there are very few moments of release and in fact you're inside for the longest time and then you finally come outside and it's sort of this freedom moment for everybody i think for the viewer and for reality but then she just gets handcuffed more or less right then and there and arrested. Yeah. So it's, it's a very brief freedom. So I think those moments sort of capture that element of her psychology during the during the interrogation as well. So I thought those were nice little really bits of visual storytelling, but in total, I'd part less, less than a screen minute of time, I would think, right? Yeah, probably. Um, There's one other kind of um, cinematic or camera technique that they use which i thought was you know, very very effective where she kind of gets tub- tunnel vision yeah when you know when you know the, the the game is you know finally up it's like that kind of final heart sink moment yeah. oh my god you know this is actually happening yep and it's just like you know the edges of the screen go a little bit blurry yeah and you know and it's a little bit subtle it's not you know in your face yeah um but it's i thought you know a very effective visual portrayal of this you know this kind of sense of of the walls closing in and yeah. you know and, and kind of just being on the edge of panic yeah. um you know really successful actually i thought that really worked yeah and, and that's the thing like, the thing that i kept thinking was this shouldn't work this shouldn't work it's a play there's no movement there's no sweeping camera <laughs> stuff we're in one really just very basic apartment they didn't construct a, a set as far as i could tell they were using what was available to them um it shouldn't work. It's all talky. It's only three characters. There's no love interest or anything like that. I was just keeping. I just kept thinking, this. Why? Why does this work? And why does this work so well when it's got everything working against it? And it. That's one of the connections I have to the Condor film. Um, but it, it. It doesn't seem like it should work. Um, there's a lot of like telling, not showing, which is the exact opposite yeah. of what we talk about in uh, film. But you do talk about that in theater, and it. It works. I was I was really really impressed. It was not a when I when I learned what the film was going to be about. In the first few minutes, I was really uneasy, and I thought, "Oh, is this? How long is this?" Um, <laughs> and then I just I got into it. I got into it. Re- and I thought so much of it was just about the interrogation and these guys just needling her and giving her like again and again the permission structure to confess. They keep saying, oh, yeah. it was a mistake, wasn't it? You still don't know what it was that she did. Oh, it was a mistake. We think it was a mistake. Um, and they, it's, it's, I guess it's expertly done. It's sinister as hell. But I mean, these guys know that they can get um, a confession out of her if they sort of empathize with her at first and then sort of give her permission to give them more and more information. And, you know, she was never... She was. I think she was given the opportunity to get a, a lawyer in there or to remain silent or whatnot. Um, but they sort of get her to forego that because they're kind of nice guys. They're doing the nice guy thing. Um, small talk about their animals or their dogs or what they do for activities or what they bench press and you know what what workout they do or whatnot. They they kind of they they identify with her and that gives her the permission to 
to confess, and it's it's definitely manipulative. Um, but again, it makes for great, um, great, great, great theater or here, great cinema. I think. And there was a voice in my head almost all the way through the film saying, saying, just shut up and get a lawyer. Shut up, yeah. get a lawyer. Phone yeah. a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. But she does make, um, she says this one thing, you know, at the very end, she just wants this stuff to be public. Why can't it be public? I think she says at one point. And I think that's probably why she doesn't think of it as a big deal and, and he didn't get a lawyer. The, the, the American people should know about this. I think that was, that was her, you know, conclusion. So in that, in that sense, I don't think she cared if she um, um, got arrested uh, or anything. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. If you use some some verbatim theatre, you just take you know somebody else's words spoken by the actual people and just film them. It's very interesting yeah. how much editorialising uh, you can actually get away with because yeah. Yeah, there is quite a bit of editorialising in the um, in the film. At least I think the film definitely feels like it has an opinion. Um, I was watching the film and I I came away thinking that the film was trying to make me feel like reality was hard done by, that she was, you know, a, a warrior for truth and yeah. she shouldn't be, um, you know, she shouldn't be going to jail for this. But then I, you know, I got to the end of the film, I thought, you know what, I think you, know, you probably should go to jail for this kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm not a great fan of incarceration, but, um, you know, if there's a chance that, what you have leaked may end up exposing sources or witnesses or putting yeah. people in danger. You know, perhaps there is a reason why some of this stuff is kept secret. And, you know, when you sign the document, you agree to obey the rules. And if you don't obey the rules, you probably deserve to be punished. I was actually kind of expecting her at the end of the film to be put away for 50 years. Oh, yeah. So it was kind of surprising when it turned out she got five years. I think it, apparently this is the longest sentence yeah. ever awarded for this particular crime. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and yet, kind of weirdly, I ended up leaving the film thinking, oh, she got away with a lot there, only five years in prison. Um, you know, I would have put her away for 50. Yeah. Uh, but again, I don't know whether it looks very different on the other side of the Atlantic. Huh. Well, I think um, a fairly popular opinion here was that she was hard done by on the on the sentencing, that it was that sure, she deserved some punishment. Um, but a couple of things happened, like the, the Intercept, who... Um, released her whistleblowing, I guess, or, and kind of just identified her. They sort of did, did her no good service by yeah. being so bad with the information and, and disseminating it immediately without really um, thinking of the consequences. So I think there was some sympathy around that. And, you know, a lot of progressives here definitely identify with the with the Intercept and appreciate their work, but that was sloppy. Um, and then for her to get the longest yeah, sentence in history felt a little uh, unjust as well. So I think... Um, I think there's a lot of sympathy for five years, probably about maybe two years too long. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't know how these sentences go, but um, seemed pretty harsh for what she did, which was just kind of taking out one one bit of documents and, and sharing them with an organization that really kind of unintentionally got her into more trouble than she might have gotten into. So I agree. Yeah. The Intercept come out looking like at least as much of a villain from this film as uh, as the FBI yeah. agents because yeah absolutely that's this is not good journalism to, no no they <laughs> to just... kind of yeah hand over your leak to the FBI immediately yeah. and I think apparently it was something like it was the um the inkjet printer dots oh really that, that, yeah that, that kind of made it extremely traceable oh, so God. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just yeah it's just sloppy um so I agree you know journalists need to protect their sources for a reason yeah um, and in fact, well, if you are a, a translator, 
for the uh, the NSA or the CIA or whoever. Well, then um, probably the protocol about leaking, leaking documents maybe isn't at the forefront of your mind. Yeah. Whereas if you are a journalist for The Intercept, you know, the appropriate protocol to follow when you're given a leaked document should be, you know, written in big block letters above every desk. So, you know, maybe they actually are the biggest villains of the piece. They really dropped the ball. Yeah. Um, speaking of dropping balls, yeah. uh, I'm going to drop it. I, now, after after last week's controversy, I'm not entirely sure what, what coin it is that you drop when you phone the police. <laughs> I, st- I still don't understand whether it's a nickel or a quarter or a dime. Or maybe it's a dollar now. Could you get a dollar it's, in a coin? Is a, that such a thing? It's a bit quarter. A bit quarter. A, a bit coin. A bit quarter. Sort of, yeah. No, it's a quarter. Right, a that's, quarter. That's, so now this is this is something that's different to Bitcoin, yes? Uh, well, yes. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about Bitcoin. Does Bitcoin really exist? Can I? I can't grab it and use it for a phone call. I don't. Yeah, can you? Yeah, can, you can we phone the cliche school with Bitcoin? <laughs> let's, let's let's try it. I'm going to either way. I hate to do this, but I am going to phone the cliche squad this week, nonetheless, because 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 I enjoy the music. Okay. Cliche squad. Um, I, I think this is a, as a successful film. It accomplishes a lot with a little. So I'm going to suggest that um, the Cliché Squad just offer a caution. Okay. Perhaps they should let oh. the film off with a warning. Nice. I only have one accusation, which is um, the use of animals in cages as a metaphor. I do mm. feel like I've seen that mm-hmm. you know, kind of too many times. It's yeah. a pretty easy metaphor to do. Yeah. Um, I think the most recent one that comes to mind is the Netflix drama Ozark, which I think kind of used this fairly heavily. But okay. I think I feel like I've seen it a lot. Oh, yeah, for it's sure. fine. You know, it works. Yeah. But I think we've we've seen this kind of image often enough that it is kind of a cliche. And I think yeah. there should be a little bit of finger wagging from the cliche squad on this one. But when it's kind of not necessary, I think, for the, the power of the film. Do you have um, uh, do you have a different opinion at all, knowing that it's from the transcript and that she was letting her dog out and putting it in a pen? I mean, does that make it feel more real or more valid somehow? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I don't think the transcript... Transcript. See, I told you I'd flip back with transcript. Tra- transcript. The transcript um, probably contained details about you know, the, the cat wearing a leash as it sits yeah. in the bedroom. I mean, um, so I don't. I think you know the. I think you know they've made an artistic choice here to go yeah. with it, and yeah. maybe it gets more emphasis than it than it deserves. I mean, I think the rest of the material is so good. This ends up feeling yeah. like a slightly heavy-handed image to me, but but you know, I, this I, is this is nitpicking. Yeah. I feel bad bringing it up. Well, the snail image is the opposite for me, that, for me and that's actually more problematic for me because I just couldn't believe that there'd be a snail on the window, but I love that image, <laughs> and that's freedom. That's sort of expressing <laughs> some sort of slow, disappearing freedom. Um, ah. that, that seems so much more unlikely to have a snail on the window than a dog in a pen, so I don't know. I think it, it's it's kind of cancelled out here by the fact that it is reality. Ooh, that's the name of the film. <laughs> when I first heard that the you know the name of the the woman involved is reality winner, it yeah. seems so utterly implausible, yeah. doesn't it? Nope, that's her um, name. You know, she sounds like somebody you know from a spoof about life in twenty thirty. Yeah, you know, not um, you know a real person that real things happen to. But then you know, well, we don't generally get to choose our names. No, um, she's stuck with it. Okay, um, overall. I thought this was great. Great film, I really yeah. enjoyed it. A lot to enjoy and a lot to learn, I think, about the process of turning pre-existing material into a riveting script. Yeah, yeah. 
I yeah, I highly recommend it. It's on something called Max. I don't know what that is, but Max, you can find <laughs> it there. Yeah, it's uh, a bit of sugar free. Let's uh, let's have a break, um, and then uh, we'll come back and talk about more spy stuff when we have a chat about three days of the Condor. So we'll see you in a minute. We're delighted to announce our new augmented reality headset, the TRCC Vision Duo. Kiss the outside world goodbye, and instead don your headset and embrace the warm, brain-nourishing electronic nipple of virtual reality for the low, low price of $3,499. Using our new headset, you can immerse yourself deeply in any film of your choice through the medium of the Two Real Cinema Club. It's two eyes, two movies. Look through your right eye to see modern cinema as it is, in crisp, clear, colourful 4K, complete with unmotivated action, lengthy exposition, poor characterization, unearned climaxes and strange leaps of storytelling logic. Or look through your left eye to see a thematically linked, much older film, possibly in black and white, made on a low budget, perhaps shot in French or Portuguese, originally released in the 1960s or the 1980s or the 1990s. Your left eye appears to inhabit an incredible virtual movie theatre, giving you the convincing illusion that you're watching that scratchy old film on a tiny portable television balanced precariously on a beer crate while your older brother shouts up the stairs that dinner is ready and you have to take out the trash. Because films were just better back then. It's been proven with science. The Two Real Cinema Club Vision Duo. Blot out the real world for just $3,499. Nice. That would fudge my brain up pretty bad, though. Because <laughs> I'm watching the two films at the same time, or can I go Two films at the same time. Oh, my God. Okay, welcome back. I'll have to try that uh, headset some other time, because <laughs> I did watch two movies this time around, but... I couldn't watch them simultaneously. Left eye, right eye. That's it. Oh, God. That's a lot of brain processing. <laughs> Too much processing power for my brain. Um, the other film we watched this week was Three Days of the Condor. Yeah. Classic. Absolutely classic 70s cinema. And I think at this point I'm supposed to ask you, why? Why? <laughs> why did you choose this one with reality? Do you have any other questions for me, Counselor? Yeah, so so I I I remember watching this film at the BFI South Bank, as oh, it was. Yeah, it's yeah. like uh, was it when it was the National Film Theatre back then? It's become the BFI South Bank now. Yep. But this is like yeah, you know, like the you know the big repertoire of cinema on the river in London, um, and it was kind of part of some season of like films about paranoia and suspicion. Oh, I yeah. think. Yep. Um, and the thing that really stuck with me is just the opening 15 minutes. Oh, um, yeah. you know, it's got this great you know, opening first act that sets up the characters and the peril you know, really clearly. It really sticks with you. Yeah. Um, so when I knew we were going to watch uh, reality, um, 
this film just you know came back to me and i remembered thinking yeah i bet i bet this would go together having watched it again you know for the first time in 15 years um, this week yeah thank goodness they do pair up actually don't they they yeah they have a lot in common so um that's a bit of luck well well done well done i loved it i thought it was a great pair and i loved it when i saw the name of just one producer come on screen in the credits. <laughs> I watched this on DVD. It was a, it was a, a well loved DVD. There were a couple of times where I have to had to go back and you 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 you, you fall off the bike, you keep riding, you lose the bike, you never forget how to ride. Correct. I was using right. the, I had to use the remote very very carefully because there were some places that sort of glitched out, and then you have to go forward one chapter and then come back. Oh. To two or three seconds right after where the glitch was. So there were a couple of times where I felt old school, 90s, uh, just working the DVD player with a very skillful thumb. Um, but this film has proper movie stars. It says Dino De Laurentiis. That's the first name you see on oh, screen. Oh, yeah. And it's not like today you get 17 producers and then a bunch <laughs> of executive producers. This is Dino's film. Um, and it's with proper movie stars, Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway, um, Cliff Robertson, Max von Zito. Yeah. Um, and if I I intentionally didn't look at the name of the director um, at first because I knew that it could only be one of about four or five people. Um, so I was thinking, okay, this is a you know, 70s political film. It's got to either be Alan Bakula, maybe George Roy Hill because he worked with um, – Redford so many times, Sidney Lumet, or in fact, Sidney Pollock. And it's just, right. it's got the look, the feel, the style of just a handful of directors in the 70s. Um, it couldn't be a Spielberg, for example. It couldn't be a, um, a Scorsese or anything like that. So um, it was good to see that Sidney Pollock was at the helm, of course. Um, yeah. Just so 70s, so 70s music, so 70s in, the, in, in New York City in particular. It takes place a bit in Washington, D.C. as well. Um, I, love, I mean, that kind of funky jazz theme at the start is begging to be sampled by some kind of hip-hop record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Sooner than later, yeah. So this is based on Six Days of the Condor. Huh. Mm. And then I realized, oh, we're, we're missing something here. It looks like uh, <laughs> three days just disappeared between book and film. And it does take place over the course of about uh, 48 hours. So it does spread out over maybe a weekend. I was feeling Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning or something like that. So Three Days of the Condor, something like that. But... Definitely a compressed um, timeline, and then this, is this where we do the the little sim the, the hi hat thing? Where we go, tsk, and you get that. Let's let's like I've I've got the hi hat right here. Perfect. Are you ready? Are you yes, ready? Please. Yes, please. Here it comes. Nice. <laughs> That's the way a film should come in. Um, first thing I thought about with this film is this is a film that has respect for toupees. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think toupees have a bad rap. I think a lot of men are trying to own the baldness and all that. But this goes back to a day and age where toupees were pretty common. They weren't very attractive. They weren't very realistic looking, but people had them. Yeah. And you, you hide them under hats too. So we'll talk about the toupees maybe later. But um, <laughs> Robert Redford, of course, is the leading man. He plays uh, Turner, who works at this American Literary Historical Society. It's just a group of readers who are scanning everything in print for, I guess, suspicious communications or something like that. But have got all these machines in the office. It's sort of a, I don't know, like a Victorian house or mansion in New York City somewhere, and there are ticker tape machines going on printing everywhere. So it's obviously not what, it's not just a bunch of people sitting around reading books together. It's a CIA front of some sort. Um, it's Turner's pick to, uh, turn to pick up uh, lunch, 
But when he comes back yeah. to the office, wow. Everyone's basically been wiped out by a hit squad. And there's a, I love this image of one of the bosses who's fallen dead on the stairwell, but you can see his toupee fallen off his head. I yeah. loved it. <laughs> it was just a wonderful touch. <laughs> um, but I loved it. It really captured the the era. Um, but Turner, he, he loses a love interest who is working there with him. And um, we had seen Max von Zito creeping around outside, and he seems to be the man who um, organized this, this hit squad to go in and take out everyone in the seemed like very innocent people working at the mansion. Should we do a spoiler bill or something like that? Because I'm going to go. I, th- I think we should. There's, okay, there, okay. there's, you know, there's enough plot in here to be worth spoiling. Let's yeah. let's ring the spoiler bell. Here we go. Wait a second. I've still, I've got it right here. I haven't moved it since the first please. half. You ready? Yes, please. Okay. Stand away from. Put, I'll take your headphones off for a second. Take just take them off. You ready? Done. Done. Why did I take my headphones off? I should have left them on, actually. Yeah. That was that, that was stupid of me. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, right. Spoiler bells, son. Um, you said first 15 minutes. I think it's like the first 30 minutes of this move, uh, movie move just beautifully. There's a fairly... Yeah. The body count is a little high for my tastes, but it just sort of shows you the sinister power of the people who are going to be um, exploring and revealing and, and all these CIA operations. Um Turns out that Turner has a code name. He's the Condor, so he calls in to try and get um, picked up, I guess, or taken back in. He, he's out there on his own. Um, he's scared, um, and there's this sort of uh, this machination of oh, who's going to bring him in? Is it the Washington office or the the New York office? So in the meantime, he does what anyone else would do. He kidnaps uh, Faye Dunaway <laughs> in like a sporting goods store. He's got her at gunpoint. He needs a place to hang out, basically. He's been at the Guggenheim Museum earlier just trying to waste time, and now he decides he's going to get himself into her um, Brooklyn apartment using a... a, a <laughs> I wonder how you're going to finish that sentence a there. A yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he's trying to figure out what's happening. Uh, why? Why are all his uh, colleagues dead? Um, who's behind this, and who's hunting him right now? So um, he's—that's hence the three days of the Condor. He's out there on his own. Um, it seems like some part of the agency is trying to get him in safely, and some part of the agency is trying to make sure he's silenced forever. Um, there's this wonderful moment that reminded me of "It's a Wonderful Life." I know this sounds kind of strange, but. Um, <laughs> There's this moment where Faye Dunaway and, and Robert Redford are listening to, um, I think she's talking to her boyfriend. She has a boyfriend elsewhere. She was supposed to go skiing, but when you get kidnapped by Robert, Robert Redford, you cancel the ski trip. And the two characters are leaning in, and they're eavesdropping, and there's all this sub subtextual chemistry already, but they're on this landline, cheek to cheek, and you just know that sex is going to happen. Um, you can't do that with the speakerphone setting on your cell phone these days. You don't get moments like that, but in the 40s cinema and the 70s cinema that you do, um, their their relationship is a little problematic because it, it's basically <laughs> he's you know kidnapping her and, and sequestering her in her apartment, but she's sort of fallen in love with him. There's a bit of handsy foreplay, and then, Jimmy, you heard it too, the sexy, sexy jazz... <laughs> It tells us that it's that requisite sexy time and Kathleen's, it's this bizarre scene where her lonely black and white photos are intercut with uh, her intercourse with the Condor. And she's but like, all, all the photographs seem to be of like, of, of, of kind of like of thin objects pointing upwards. Oh, is that as right? As far as I can recall. <laughs> it's, it's like not super, not, you know, like yeah. super subtle symbolism. Yeah. Well, and, and she looks surprised that the, just as surprised as the viewers are wondering why this is happening. 
Um, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense that they would fall in love. But this is that's I think one of the weaker parts of this film is that they have to paste that in there as opposed to just uh, this the the kidnapping. I think would have been more more than enough. I mean, uh, you can kind of shrug and say, well, this was the seventies. Yeah, you know, kidnapping a woman at gunpoint was a reasonable you know romantic um, bid. Yeah, back then. I mean, it's kind of it's it said what it really reminded me was it's it's the plot point from the forty nine steps, isn't it? Basically, it's it's. Um, I think you added ten steps. You, know, you kind of sort of kidnap this woman and keep keep her close to you yeah. as your kind of alibi and your protection, and then they end up falling in love. But, um, but you know, it's it they just about get away with it in the forty nine steps. But I yeah, see, you know, I saw that film when it was called the Thirty Nine Steps. Now, did, are you talking about a sequel? Oh, is it thirty nine steps? Someone's gonna maybe have... they added. Do you think they added ten steps to the European <laughs> market? Something to do with metric system? They may have. We'll have to look at that. I'm going to have to look that up now. Yeah, oh, no. Oh, that's, that's terrible. <laughs> it's a certain number. At least I got the you second digit right. You can imagine that uh, Faye Dunaway's character, Kathy, would think this guy's insane. He's talking about CIA people trying to, to track him down and kill him. But at morning coffee, after their romance has been sort of consummated, um, sure enough, uh, Von Zito's character, Joubert, uh, sends in this misfiring postman to kill them. There's some violence there, and uh, it's sort of proven that she should be believing Condor. And he manages to sort of sleuth his way towards truth. He kidnaps Cliff Robertson. There are a couple of kidnappings in here. Um, Cliff Robertson has a toupee. It's not... <laughs> It's not very hard to detect, but um, again, it's just, I loved seeing the toupees. Um, he exposes a, a CIA network within the CIA trying to uh, execute him. So he's discovering that it's in fact CIA who's um, trying to, to, to eliminate him and that they are up to some um, no good um, Joubert is a major character. So that's the Max von Zito character because he's sort of this professional assassin. He has a quaint and harmless hobby, as most professional assassins do. He paints these little <laughs> model soldiers. So he's kind of tells you he's a reasonable guy. Um, and Condor is putting together the whole story. Um, and I, th- I think this is the 1970s. Oil is just under the story's uh, uh, surface the whole time. And he um, has apparently sort of discovered that there's a connection between Middle East oil countries and, and Spanish-speaking countries. I think they're trying to hint at Venezuela and and they have some interests that compete with American interests, and that's why the, the CIA is involved. Um, but he does seek revenge. Condor wants to seek revenge because there's one CIA overlord named Atwood who has ordered the hit that killed his friends, his girlfriend, his co-workers, and nearly him. Um, so he tracks him down to his house, and this is the, the sort of the one of the climactic moments, I suppose. Um, Von Zito, who they've been talking about as the Alsatian gentleman, um, interrupts just when... Um, Redford's going to do something, maybe kill uh, this Atwood character, maybe not. But um, it's Sundance himself. Robert Redford thinks he's about to get gunned down by the Alsatian. But then Von Zito, I hope this looked good on your version as well. He fires a clean enough headshot to make it look as if Atwood killed himself. But it's so clean. There's no blood. There's no gray matter. (laughs) And the actor playing Atwood is still sort of blinking and nodding a few moments after the bullet's gone straight through his head. So... Max Vanzito, just the best. Good casting there. I think these toupees are obviously a lot tougher than you realize. I think that bullet just bounced straight off the fibers, didn't it? <laughs> I wasn't sure if that actor was wearing a toupee. There were a lot of toupees, but I'm not sure about that one. Um, and then there's the toupee pork pie, pork pie, is it pork pie, pork pie hat combo, which seems to really... <laughs> 
hide the balding very well. Um, there's sort of a tag scene where um, Redford, uh, Turner's character, or Tur- Redford playing Turner, um, calls out Cliff Robertson, um, but he doesn't call him out on the toupee, which is showing respect. Um, and he, he just can't help... Um, uh, um, can't, can't help but take the article to the like what he's written up some sort of story or outed the whole operation that there's a CIA group that was interested in the Arab oil and they're willing to kill their own in order to make it possible to extract or whatnot. Um, so he goes to the New York Times and Cliff Robertson's deeply upset by that. Um, and they have a little back and forth over truth. And then Bradford sort of disappears into the streets of New York, but you never know if he's going to survive that or not. He's not saying. Well, as far as I can tell, at the end of the movie, Robert Redford joins the Salvation Army because yeah. we—that's yeah. that's what he does. He goes, he goes, stands next to some Salvation Army people, and then we just fade out. And I, I, I assumed that that's what he went. Then that, that was going to be his long-term cover story. Well, they got the Salvation Army to do their dirty work and kill him right there. <laughs> that might have been his death <laughs> shot right there. No blood, no gray matter. <laughs> Look out for that tuba. Yeah. So. Um, as always, I got a little wrapped up in the story and the time, but I was really excited to see this because this is a film I'd seen a number of times back as early as maybe when I was 10 or 12 years old because oh. um, it was probably already on TV by late 70s. So I had seen it many times. I always like it. It definitely feels 70s. It's stuck. That love scene it just feels so strange in the middle of it, but it's Faye Dunaway and Robert Redford, so you've got to put that on screen in that day and age, I guess. Um but very yeah, and the music it just it just brought me back. I just it, I love seeing it every time, and it is really tense. And those first thirty minutes are di- dynamic, and then Max von Zito's just scary, but not. And it's just a really complicated and wonderful character as well. So it's uh, it's classic seventy cinema. It's I mean it's fantastically well structured. I did check my watch a few times yeah. just for the point of view of, yeah. of you know checking some figures for the pod. So like the big murder happens pretty much exactly fifteen minutes in. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's, you know, it's very tightly structured. Yeah. You know, everything kicks off then. Um, Faye Dunaway is kidnapped at 35 minutes in. Yeah. Um, if, if we assume that, I mean, where they make love, that's like the midpoint, that's like one hour, seven minutes in. And then like the turning the tables scene. Yeah. Uh, where Robert Redford kind of comes up with this plan and then he kind of puts all his pieces in place. That's like, that starts at about one hour 30 and it's just under two hours, the whole film. It's like, yeah. it's shaped just right. Beautifully, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's very kind of, um, very closely well structured. But you've seen the film more than I have, yeah. I think then. So I've only ever seen it twice. Okay. So I've got to ask you, you have more experience than I do. Does the plot really quite make sense or not? It doesn't matter. <laughs> It doesn't matter. One of my last notes here is that it's it's CIA stuff, and it's like appropriately convoluted, so it, it captures the nature of the spy agencies, but it's also convoluted just enough to make the story ununderstandable enough to make the viewer <laughs> go on trying to understand it. Um, what doesn't make sense is the whole reader thing, and that he would somehow by reading. I mean, it seems like they're reading everything: newspapers, um, poetry, books. They're just reading all sorts of stuff. It makes no sense that he would come up with some some notion that um, the Arab countries were in cahoots with. Um, looked like specifically Venezuela, maybe Spain was involved too, um, in manipulating the oil market or something like that. And if that were true, I mean, I know this is this is espionage, and you're not supposed to say anything directly, but. He it, he stumbles onto the oil thing really late in the game, it seems like. <laughs> um, so, no, it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't matter one bit. <laughs> We're not supposed to know. I think that's the, the allure of it. I was a little bit confused by some of the kind of story logic, because you know, we know that Max von Sydow is, 
is um, out to kill Robert Redford yeah. all the way through the film. And he even says, you know, well, I'll kill him for free because yeah. you know, he's a loose end. Yeah. Um, and yet then you know, they spend a good few minutes together completely alone in a lift. Um, yeah. When Max von Sydow could easily have just bumped him off. Absolutely. And yet somehow he doesn't. Yeah. Um, and then you know, right at the end of the movie, when you know, Redford turns the tables and he turns up at the, at the house of the man who arranged the hit. Um, and just before he's about to you know, do whatever it is he plans to do, Max von Sydow turns up again and, and Robert Redford had no idea that he was going to be there. And actually, it looks like it's all, you know, the whole game is up. Yeah. But, you know, but luckily, off screen... Uh, you know, before the scenes happened, Max von Sydow has already changed sides, yeah. and he you know, he switched over, and, and and now he's kind of he's on Robert Redford's side yeah. all of a sudden. It feels like, well, that's a bit blooming lucky, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Lady Luck smiled on you today, otherwise you'd be a goner. Yeah. So, so I, I, this idea that Robert Redford is this kind of super mastermind who outsmarts everybody else doesn't quite um, doesn't quite kind of add up. It doesn't but, add up now. I think the plot clips along fast enough that, you know yeah. what, it's fine. I was entertained. And I, most of these questions I only really came up with after the film was over. Yeah. And each of those moments are inserted for tension purposes, I think, almost exclusively. So you do you do worry about the character. The whole idea is that you're worrying about this character. And then he starts to outsmart. You're right. He All of a sudden he's a great telephone mechanic and... Uh, he can uh, get information while well, he's a researcher, so he gets all this information he needs. Um, I think he uses a phone book at one point. Oh my god, there's a yeah. big phone book in there at one point. Um, yeah, so it's you know you're you're seeing his great sleuthing skills, even though he's just a reader. He can, he keeps saying, "I just read books," um, when in fact, um, well, th- that's one of the messages. And I do want to talk about this quickly before we get too crazy. Um, there's, I think, reading is bad for you. <laughs> Wait a second! You're 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 a teacher. You're not allowed to say yeah, that, but James. You're always you. You're the one who always reads books before the pod and all that. And I just want you to stop that because <laughs> everyone here at Two Real loves you. We don't want you killed by spies. <laughs> and the message from this film is: don't be a reader. I, I love this notion. I just read books yeah. because that's that's one of the lines that I wrote down in my notebook. Yeah, where he barks into the phone. Robert Redford says, "I'm not a field agent. I just read books." And that yeah. is like a really nice, memorable yeah. line. This the script is um, has got a lot of great lines in it. So it's Lorenzo Semple Jr. He wrote like Batman, the nineteen sixty six TV series. I love that show, yeah, yeah. And then Papillon, the Parallax View, yeah. the the nineteen seventy six King Kong movie, which is yeah. also Dina De Laurentiis, wasn't it? Absolutely. Flash Gordon, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of you know good fun scripts. And then um, he wrote it with David Rayfield, um, who wrote Round Midnight, then The Firm, that Tom Hanks yeah. film. Um, the interpreter. So I mean, these guys have got proper yeah. screenwriting chops, and like some of the some of the lines that I wrote down in my book, where Faye Dunaway says, um, "What are you scared for? You've got the gun," she says, mm-hmm. um, and Robert Redford tells his boss at work, "I trust a few people, and it's a problem." Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of they're, these are lovely, yeah. very memorable, sweet little lines that that just stay in the stay in the brain. Um, there's this line. Uh, which uh, where I think Robert Redford tells one of his spy bosses, you think not getting caught in a lie yeah. is the same as telling Don't the truth. Yep. And I read an interview with Sidney Pollack. Is, uh, Pollack. is it Pollack or Pollack? I've always Pollack. said Pollack. Pollack. Sidney Pollack. Sydney yeah, that sounds about yeah. right, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, the, like the fish. Yeah. Um, uh, and Sidney Pollack says he liked that line so much that he recycled it in two other films oh, really? that he directed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he, he says that uh, Higgins at the end, the Cliff Robertson character. That's yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there is yeah a lot of great dialogue writing in this film. Um, yep. Lots of lovely, pithy, memorable little lines. Mm. And the other thing I really, really enjoyed is the way that it kind of fetishizes the equipment of Spycraft. Yeah. I just love those chunky phones and those, you know, big computers with big kind of big clunky switches and yeah. tapes. and tape. Uh, and like at the beginning of the movie, there's like the machine that turns the pages of books and reads them automatically yeah i I love all that stuff it just looks so great yeah and you know that the scene where um you know robert redford is using this kind of little handheld phone that he plugs into the phone exchange yeah all that sort of equipment it's just a you know great load of fun it's part of the enjoyment of the movie yeah but similarly similarly to 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 reality um i there are times when I think, why is this film succeeding? Because you're right, the structure is really, really tight, but there are these deep, deep holes, um, and we don't really understand it. And that doesn't really matter, um, and the, the the romance is so pasted in there. There, there are a number <laughs> of things that make it you feel like it, it shouldn't work, and yeah, the, the the fact that Max Fonzito overlooks a couple of great opportunities to kill Robert Redford and and doesn't take them, um, it it. It's not very believable. I mean, I think reality is being super believable, but this one also, I think there's some problems to it, but it still succeeds. And I think in part because it's just, you know, a fantastic cast, a fantastic director, a fantastic script. Do you know De Laurentiis? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and one thing that I had, I had these Chinatown vibes watching this film, and it's, it's in oh. part because of Faye Dunaway um, and the intri- intrigues and the twists. Um, and she just brings this... For Faye Dunaway, I think she's sort of under underwritten and mishandled. She just brings this calm, elegant, wild card element to films, I think. Um, mm. But you know, the whole thing about tying her up, kidnapping her, I mean, I guess the protagonist has to do what the protagonist has to do. But um, there's not a lot of – there's not a, she doesn't get a lot of lines. She doesn't get a lot of real action. She kind of gets into the spy game a little bit and helps him out when she realizes, oh, he's telling the truth. Um but uh, especially early on, she's really given very little. She's just sort of this one-dimensional table scrap of a character, but she's vulnerable, right? And she had to be vulnerable and, and manipulated. You could probably almost make her uh, a, a cliche squad. Um, yeah. It just feels like there's supposed to be a love interest in the story. So I'd be interested if that's in the book or... Um, yeah, I wonder, yeah. That in the script. Um, but the thing about it is she manages to make it a good part, and she's great. Um, despite all that. Um, so I, again, it just, it, there, there are a number of things that led me to believe, oh, why is this a good film? And it does, it, it hasn't aged beautifully. There are definitely some clunky things. Um, but it, it, like reality, I think it succeeds despite itself somehow. I wonder whether it largely demonstrates that you can get away with an awful lot when you have the charm of Robert Redford to ride on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and you know, he's a you know, tremendously charming, you know, proper film star Prop. with a capital F and a capital S. Absolutely fantastic. Um, it's, 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 it's very quintessentially 70s, isn't it? Yeah, this well, film. definitely. It has all this kind of 70s theme about kind of, and I told you that I saw it as part of a season of yeah. films about paranoia. It's, you know, it's, it's paranoia and it's the distrust of authority. And it's, yeah. it's a kind of, it's post-Watergate it's definitely post-Watergate, world, yeah. isn't it? Yep. Um, I think this film was was it made after or before all the president's men? I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. I think, I think before. I think we need right. Okay, yeah, may well be. I wonder if all the president's men was actually seventy six. Is that what you're saying? But it's still, um, but it's going to. It has that kind of flavor, doesn't it? It, Oh, absolutely. So it kind of it fits in very tightly with that kind of nineteen seventies 
Yeah, well, and I think just the um, the distrust of the government, what we'd seen happen here, um, the oil shortages, um, and you know potential violence around uh, um, around oil and resources, all that's out there. Obviously, the music and everything else we talked about, but um, yeah, very quintessentially seventies. I think for me, there's also, although I just told you to stop reading, there's this sort of powerful case for journalism of that era, right? Like he comes to the, yeah. he goes to the New York Times. That's who you can trust is the, is the, the newspaper industry or journalists. Um, and it, it, well, to go back to the reading quickly, there's this one moment where um, a nurse, and you can maybe you can back me up on this. I don't think she would do this, but there's a nurse in like an ICU ward where one of the where, where Wicks, one of um, Condor's bosses, is sort of lying almost dead. And she picks up a magazine and starts reading. And that's right the moment where you get this idea that, oh, Joubert just pulled this guy off life support in the other room because she was reading. <laughs> it was like a, it was a paperback book. I couldn't tell you what it was that she was reading. But yeah, I, these days that would kind of be frowned on, I think. <laughs> do you she have was time having a to break this? I can go to the break room, read your paperback book. Don't do it like, you know, actually at work. She's virtually, you know, at the bedside reading a book, isn't she? I mean, if you're in an ICU. Yeah, that would be frowned on. I don't think you have time to pick up a book and read if you're an ICU nervous. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. But there's definitely, a, yeah, I think journalism is, is the, trusted, uh, the trusted element of society there. I mean, it's, it's something I think we'll come back to when we talk about the synthesis. But it's, yeah, it's fascinating that... Going to the press is what saves Robert Redford's bacon yeah. you know, in this film, whereas going to the press is, is what lands reality winner in, in jail. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's two completely different uh, outcomes. Well, before I, I want to kind of bring them to the two films together because yeah. they do, you know, they do kind of go together really well. But before we do that, let's play yeah, my favorite game. You have to you have to humor me. Let's play. Who am I? Who am I? So I, and once again, I say this every week. I'm going to say it again. I can't remember who goes first. So you should, <laughs> Do you yeah. want to go first? I, geez, I, I didn't even think about this very much this time around. But um, <gasps> I'll tell you who I want to be. Oh, yeah. I want to be Max von Zito. Um, Is that because you really like painting those little uh, those little Warhammer figures? I hate that sort of stuff. No, I, and I don't I don't like that kind of detail hobby. But I think that was just a cheap bit of characterization. But <laughs> I just like Von Zito. I mean, he's I love the way he cleans up the crime scene at the very end. He knows exactly what Redford has touched, and uh, I just love the fact that he can kill a person and not make the person bleed. I think that's, that's a gift. <laughs> that is skill. You're that's right. That's a gift. Absolutely. But also, I mean, I love the fact the, um, you know, he busts out into French here and there. He's Swedish, but he's playing the Alsatian gentleman. And at one, <laughs> po- we, we, at one point in our family history, we thought that our grandfather's um, ancestors had come from Alsace-Lorraine. So was always, I've always been sort of um, entranced by Alsace. Um, so I just love the fact that it was like seeing myself on screen, the Alsatian gentleman. <laughs> So, it's, I love this. This is another kind of 1970s notion, which is that Europe is one homogenous mass, yeah. isn't it? It's, <laughs> there's those Europeans, and they talk about they talk about that in the film too, doesn't he? Say, I'd, I prefer Europe. I'd go back to Europe. And Redford says, No, I'm, I'm from here. <laughs> um, well, how about yourself? I can, I yeah I, I I usually flatter myself with these you know who am I um, things. I'm going to flatter myself again. I. Um, I think it's more to do with the skill of her portrayal than you know the the real character itself. I I did really sympathise with reality and reality yeah. winner. Insofar as I oh, I could I could feel her conflicted sense of 
wanting to do the right thing, but not having a good enough grasp of the situation to understand what the right thing to do might be. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like that's yeah, that's kind of been my baseline state for most of my life. Wanting to do the right thing, but I just don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, 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 what shall I do? Um, and also, uh, you know, I could really sympathise with that that notion of um, uh, of, of kind of things going wrong and, and that kind of that um, sense of the whole world kind of collapsing in on you and yeah. getting tunnel vision. That's, you know, that's a feeling I feel um, very vividly from my history tests when I was at school. Um, and I would know that I should have read the chapter and I did read the chapter. In fact, I spent two hours reading the chapter. I read the chapter five times and yet here I am you know, trying to answer the questions on the test and I don't know the answer to any of the questions yeah. and I can't start to get tunnel vision and the world is collapsing around, around, around me and everything kind of goes out of focus a bit. And yeah, I really, really felt like that. I'm glad to say that I haven't leaked any important CIA documents. I've just flunked history tests. But, you know, but I feel like the principle is the same. That you know of. <laughs> well, that's true. You're right. That I know of. Maybe someone's leaked them under your name. Because you do have an <laughs> alias, Jimmy Razor. Come on. Jimmy Razor. All, all sorts of things are happening under that exactly. alias. Exactly. Yeah, don't look that alias up on the internet because you get that Canadian serial killer, don't you? That's so. right. <laughs> that, that really, really wasn't me. I have looked up the 49 steps, and you're right, it was the 39 okay. steps. So I managed to add another 10 steps there. Yeah. I always like to think, make things more difficult yeah, yeah. than they really are. Bigger, so, better. Yeah, I added 10 extra steps there. Let's, right, let's, let's, well, let's, let's do our synthesis. We'll bring these two, bring the two films together because yeah, I like this overlong jingle that I play now. Yeah. And, and, and that'll give me enough time to try and think of a reason why these two films belong together. So, and I always say the same thing. I'm going to say it again. These are, these are kind of like two sides of the same coin, or at least they're like two similar coins, but in different pockets of a jacket, something like that. One okay. of them is in a purse, one's in a wallet or something. So like in both of these films, that like, like we have a lowly researcher, you know, they work for a US intelligence agency, but really they just they're just kind of a desk worker. And then they get caught up in uncovering or releasing important secrets uh, and, and they suffer the consequences. Mm -hmm. Um I must say, watching both of these films, you know, you know, what I was asking myself was, could there possibly be a timelier moment for a film about the mishandling of official documents? Because I feel like yeah. I cannot read the news at any point at the moment without reading about how uh, Trump mishandled official documents. But he says that Biden mishandled official documents. But yeah. then he had the right to have the documents and he declassified the documents. But but no, he didn't declassify the documents. I feel like... Yeah. You know, this this you know, not only is this ripped from the headlines, this feels like these films are both kind of feeding the headlines somehow. This is the right time for these films. Yeah, it was filmed. Um, reality was filmed. I think um, th about this time last year, maybe spring of twenty twenty two. So probably before um, the documents were even found at Mar a Lago. So it's actually perfect timing. Got on got on a Netflix perfectly. Um, but I don't think it could have been that well planned. So I think um, it's just, it's happenstance. It's uh, very serendipitous for for the makers of reality. It's interesting that from these from these related setups, basically we get you know, two wildly different playouts, don't we? In, so in reality, um, meaning the film, mm -hmm. uh, I'm surprised we haven't ran into that trouble more often. Um, in the movie reality, the, the person who does the leaking, they get boxed in and confined and they're kind of chewed away at further and further and further and so their world kind of shrinks. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas um, Condor is kind of like the opposite and, and Redford becomes... You know, like his world expands and he sort of becomes, he ends up being like super competent at everything. And in the end, he wins all of the prizes, doesn't he? You know, he kind of, you know, he gets the girl and he gets his freedom and he gets one up on authority, you know, and he gets to join the Salvation Army. Like yeah. Yeah, everything goes right for him at the end of the <laughs> film. Um, I, I ended up kind of feeling, you know what this, these films really kind of say? They, they highlight that it's not so much the crime that's significant, it's the criminal. Yeah. You know, Robert Redford leaks to the press and that's his safety net. Reality leaks to the press and it's her downfall. Yeah. Um, You know, in Condor, it's a man at the centre of the trouble and he, you know, he shoots his way out and he outwits people and he screws his way out of trouble. Whereas in reality, it's a woman who's at the centre of the problem. And you know what? She gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed Mm -hmm. until at the end of the movie, she can barely breathe. Yeah. Um, You know, it's not who's doing the crime. It's not the crime. It's who's doing the crime, isn't it? Yeah. And there's... um... In both stories, there this classic um, idea of like an ordinary person being put into extraordinary circumstances, and then sort of rising to the occasion, and that definitely happens with Condor in Three Days. Um, and it's you know it sort of happens to reality in the sense that she's got this what's considered sort of a very banal sort of low level job, but she does something quite. Um, Quite dramatic, quite extraordinary, and then the, yeah. the she gets just zeroed in on so quickly that she doesn't have a chance to hit the road and run from the law or anything like that, or move to a different country or um, anything like that. But she does have to deal with um, the extraordinary situation. So I think you know they're they're definitely playing on that um, that uh, well worn theme. I think of the per the ordinary guy getting into trouble. This I got another kind of synthesis of these two films, and tell me whether you agree with this or not, which is I think. I started out writing in my notebook. These films have very different attitudes to women, but after thinking about it, I don't. I don't think that. I think these films have actually very similar attitudes to women, but but they have what I wrote here was they have different opinions of whether those attitudes are right. So, in, like in both the films, the female lead has very little agency. Mm-hmm. You know, the female lead is pushed around by men. She has to do the bidding of men. You know, her freedoms are gradually eroded. Um, but in reality, you know, this you know, erosion of the, the, the freedom and agency of the woman is at the heart of the film. It's the central theme. And we, yep. we feel for her and her complex character. Whereas in, in Three Days of the Condor, um, Faye Dunaway's character, you know, has her freedom taken away from her. She's pushed around. She has to do the bidding of men. And but she's basically just, you know, a plot device or she's like a prize her character, such as it is, is terribly short-changed. She's just like a device, isn't she? Yeah. She's basically a device that they can get um, Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway on the poster having a kiss. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of all of she, all that she is for. So similar things sort of happen to both women, but but Three Days of the Condor is fine with that. Whereas reality is pointing out this is not so, such, such a good idea. I agree. And then, I mean, in both films, there's really only one lead female character there are a couple of other maybe two other characters in condor that get maybe three other female characters get lines and they're on the screen for for much time at all um so they are the two principal characters in each film and of course reality there really is no other woman in that film i think until the the end isn't one of the fbi agents who frisks her and oh yeah takes her away as a woman but um there are not a lot of women in either one i I think what i took home from these movies uh, back to back, which is basically in the modern world, um, you know what? You can leak secret documents as long as you're the right person to leak them. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, it's big trouble. Yeah. Make of make of that what you will. Yeah, we'll see. Well, it'd be interesting to see how the 
the uh, the actual news story uh, with the with the with the documents uh, works out. Yeah, I, I I don't know whether that will ever be resolved. I mean, I wonder. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I think these two films would be great to watch right now if you're at all interested in what's happening. Uh, with former President Trump, this is these are two great films to to watch. Yeah, somewhere yeah. there must be a repertory a repertory cinema yeah. that could put these two on as double bill and uh, and clean up, and people will tell them yeah. how clever they are. Yeah, oh, because they got the idea from us. Yes, Yahoo! <laughs> Go to Real Cinema Club, you guys rock. Uh, speaking of repertory cinema, yeah. uh, we've got time to talk about also playing at this theatre. So, uh, have you uh, been out this week? Seen anything else? No, I've been really, I've been <laughs> very busy. I've watched one. I have watched one entire. Oh my god, is it HBO? I mean Max. Is it Max? Or well, is Max. It? No, no, no. Max. It was the one that hasn't changed its name. Netflix. I've right, seen okay. that one. It's, that's a, they'll seem to be renamed Flix or Net. One of films, those two. Internet Flix. Netflix. <laughs> um, Netflix. I saw the documentary. I think it was maybe six parts um it was called tour de france unchained or tour de france au coeur du peloton in french it was good it was so just sort of documented the 2022 tour de france ah. um but that was really well done they sort of explored the different teams and featured on a lot of the lead writers for each team and uh, i liked it a lot I've, i'm writing i've been doing this forever but i'm writing a, a feature script based on a bicycle tour in Europe. Ooh. So it was very helpful also. It was really helped my, inform my writing quite a bit, but um, it was good. It was very... But is this, is this like a tour of professional cyclists or is this like a, you know, like a, you know, a family out for a jaunt on a holiday? The Tour de France is professional cyclists. You don't, you don't know. <laughs> okay, that. right. Thanks. Thanks. For Are you <laughs> talking about my script? Yeah. Oh, there's a script as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, ah, <laughs> What's happening in the script? Yeah, it's a professional, yeah, professional writer's tour. Just one of that would be the protagonist is one of the lead writers those guys are tough aren't they my god i feel i feel exhausted just watching it on tv tough but like emaciated very very thin all of them they don't look healthy and this tour does not lend any any decency to their health it's just rough oh punishing yeah yeah so um uh i uh watched eighth grade oh good oh good yeah um which is uh, so bo burnham picture didn't really know anything about him 2018 um, with Elsie Fisher, coincidentally also starring, is it Josh Hamilton, who is the like the lead FBI agent? Oh yeah, yeah. In reality, so I'd never seen that guy before in my life, and now I've seen him twice in a week. He plays teen fathers a lot. He's on a series here called um, Thirteen Reasons I Hate You. I think is another one. Okay. There's always this sort of uh, yeah, like is it aloof father? He's not the best father, but he's still kind of young and sort of he's trying. He's a, he's a trying father. Well, that's exactly what he is in eighth grade. Yeah. He is trying father. He's, yeah. I mean, he's very sweet. I um, I had read that this was, you know, like a, a great, uh, you know, very believable, honest film yeah. about being you know, about 13, 14. Um, and so I suggested kind of bravely mm. you know, to my children, well, let, you know, let's watch this. And we all sat down and watched it as a family. Um, and I was kind of thinking, you know, it's, you know, it's good when you're young. If you see that other people are also going through the same kind of yeah. self-conscious emotional mess that you're going through, yeah. not not to imply that my children are a self-conscious emotional mess, 
uh, I reminding myself here that this will be a publicly available podcast. But um, uh, so, and we were kind of you know all enjoying it and kind of cringing away at the same bit. And then, but what I didn't realise was that you know about forty five minutes into the film, there is a you know a fairly large subplot about blowjobs. Oh yes, and oh. Yeah. Yes, and then and then I kind of realised, oh no, now I not only have I got the embarrassment of watching all these scenes about blowjobs, but far worse than that, my teenage children have to sit and watch several scenes about blowjobs next to their parents. They will. I don't. Think um, you don't have to worry about ever watching a film with them again. I don't think. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's, yeah, exactly. They are never going to take my suggestions for seeing a film ever again. Oh dear. Oh dad. Um, uh, so, so that was good fun, but but that is that is a lovely film actually with yeah. some great performances and yeah, you know, that's terrifically well written. It's yeah, it's a lovely picture. I think that was on our list to possibly pair with. Are you there, God? Ah, right? okay. Uh, those two would have paired up well, yeah. actually. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, and then uh, last night, I, we managed to get out of the house to watch Peter Gabriel on Ooh. tour. Ooh. So he played one London date, which was last night, um, and uh, that was good fun. He's not. Young, he's seventy three now. Um, you know, and still able to sort of bob around a bit on yeah. stage. You know, and certainly, you know, and he's still got the voice. Um, and it was, you know, enjoyable show. Uh, and we had kind of reasonable tickets, but were stood behind some people quite a bit taller than us, so ended up oh. watching the screens rather more than the stage. But it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was. Where was the performance? This was at the O two which is what used to be like the Millennium Dome in the far east uh, side oh, yeah. of, the, of, the, of the city. Yeah. Um, which was originally built as a kind of a temporary structure. It's basically a massive tent and yeah. it was going to be a temporary structure for the Millennium. Yeah. And yet they've managed to keep it going. And it's, you know, it's a perfectly acceptable concert venue and there's like a big mall and yeah. restaurants and places to go out and venues and stuff. And it's, it's you know, a fun part of town. Um, it's not a fantastic concert venue and it's yeah. not, Tripping in character, but it's fine, and it was a good show. So good, yeah, I good. enjoyed it. Wow. It's fine. I went along expecting it to be a bit of a farewell tour, and actually, it was a very forward-looking concert. And he was constantly talking about it was sixty percent new material, and he was talking about oh. you know songs that he is still writing and yeah. things that he hopes are going to come to fruition. Um, so it doesn't look like he's slowing down. Hmm. So yeah, no farewell tour. He'll be back again in five years. Nice. We'll see. Nice. Um, next time oh, yeah. then. So we're going to watch a Wes Anderson double bill, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Asteroid City yep. um, is his uh, new picture with absolutely stellar mega cast. We can compare that to um, his now sophomore picture. Is that the right word? Yeah. Is that was that what you would call your second feature? Well done, sophomore. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting I'm getting used to this high school high school. Uh, yeah. Nomenclature I think now. most so Americans we, wouldn't know that there's another, that there's a third O in there. So we say sophomore, not sophomore, but you spell it sophomore. Oh, so, so okay. So is, this is this is like me saying uh, Connecticut now, isn't it? Or something like that. Please, is that right? Please don't so, do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> so, so, so sophomore. Yeah. It's a, it's a soft. Sophomore. Yeah, it's soft. Sophomore picture. Yeah, okay, yeah. right. Which is called Rush. More, not Rusher more. <laughs> it's Rushmore, right? Okay, Good I'm gonna point. I'm gonna try very hard to get this right for next time. So we're gonna be watching those two. Um, I have uh, uh, two weeks to practice. Yeah. Uh, come back and join us next week because we're gonna be hanging out at the popcorn counter talking about 1970s Hollywood. I reckon we can get some some popcorn chit chat about that. Yeah. Um, and otherwise, join us in two weeks for Wes Anderson plus Wes Anderson. We'll see you then. Okay, thanks for joining us. Until next time. Goodbye, everyone.
I'd be careful with those secret documents. Ooh, and mention Tom Hanks. I forgot to mention Tom Hanks. Uh, oh my God, Tom Hanks. That, Tom Hanks. That's another Thanks thing. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is not in either of those two films. That's what we want to say about the two films. I don't. I, I, I'm not, I think Tom Hanks actually is in Asteroid City. You know? Oh my God, really? Oh, so yeah, I think so. Hanks. I think he might be. So we have reason to mention his name.